Welcome to Earth to Philosophy, a conversation-based podcast with philosophers working on nature and the environment. Thinking of climate justice as a destination and thinking of the target of reparations on the constructive view as a destination shouldn't make us think we're going to get to a specific distribution or a specific state of affairs 30 years from now and then we'll be done. Today, we're speaking with Olufemi Taiwo, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University. We read a draft chapter of a book Femi is working on that links reparations with environmental justice considerations. And we also read two pieces that he published online, How a Green New Deal Could Exploit Developing Countries in Ceylon from 2019, and Climate Colonialism and Large-Scale Land Acquisitions, a guest blog post on the Carnegie Climate Governance Initiative blog, which was also from 2019. So if you could, first of all, give a brief overview of the main ideas of the chapter that we read, Reconsidering World History, and maybe um, just contextualize it for us. What is, what is the role that this chapter plays in the book project that you're working on to the extent that you want to talk about the book project? Right, right. Um, so the book is called Reconsidering Reparations. Um, and I think of the book, to the extent that it has an argument at all, which um, it certainly has a bunch of arguments, but I wouldn't say the book as a whole is an argument. What it's arguing is trying to say, here's how we should think about reparations. Here's a different way to think about it than maybe um, you're used to thinking about it or maybe that um, you're hearing right now. And so the role of this chapter, Reconsidering World History, is basically just to say what view of world history fits the view of reparations that I have and that I'm asking people to consider. And so the way that I understand world history, um, the way that I understand its effect on the present is basically is setting up different patterns of accumulation. So when people talk about things like distributive justice, which is also a thing that comes up in the book, people say things like, we want income equality, or we want to combat income inequality. Or they'll say things like wealth. Wealth is what we should be concerned with. We want to spread the wealth around. Um, and I think those are all onto something. But it's as if they're taking a snapshot of the distribution of wealth and income that we have today and maybe contextualizing that with history, but seeing what we have today as kind of itself the problem to be solved. And so what we're dealing with is, is the legacy of slavery or the legacy of past forms of racism um, on present forms of racism, like Jim Crow and redlining into structuring today's racist reality. And obviously, um, I think that's getting something right, but I think about things a little bit differently. Um, and that's why I wrote the Reconsidering World History chapter of the book. What I want to try to say is something that I think people have been saying in popular consciousness, but maybe I'll say it a little differently or a little more comprehensively um, at a global scale rather than a national scale. And that thing is what we're dealing with just is the past. The transatlantic slave trade, the primitive accumulation, the basic starting point of capitalism, the industrial revolution, these are processes. They're not things that happened that are finished events and that the rest of the world kind of happened after, what these things are, how we should understand them and their relevance to today are as processes, as events that kicked off processes of accumulation. So if you look at the world, if you look at where wealth is, if you look at where capital is, if you look at where universities are, where research gets done, these all are downstream effects of historical processes, chains of events, that started centuries and centuries ago with people sailing across the oceans, navigating the oceans and colonizing places and enslaving people. What we're living out now are chains of events that started there, but have continued to the present and just are the same event, if you'd like to say. Um, so what that's setting up is a view of reparations that says, well, we want to end those processes. Of course, we want to stop actually trading in human beings, but we also want to stop the processes of accumulation that started there as well. Um, and that's the view of reparations that I'm arguing for. Okay, great. It seems to me, and I, I may be wrong, but it seems to me like the only 
like the way that any environmental philosophy even takes up this kind of question or accounts for past history in a way of understanding distribution in the present. But it seems to me like the only arena in environmental philosophy that even entertains questions of this kind is related to climate justice, which is a direct connection to, to what you're arguing about in the blog. Environmental philosophers don't go so far as to talk about things aside from like historic emissions and maybe like the wealth that that people have gotten by living in industrialized places where wealth was being created at the expense of people who were not living in those places and perhaps also enslaved people. So I guess my question is, do you see this connection as your way of tying the question of reparation to climate colonialism? Or is there something even more basic that you want to get to in climate colonialism? Yeah, I think there's something more basic that I want to get to in climate colonialism. Um, and I agree with your point that when people bring it up, it tends to be in the specific context of climate justice. Um, and I myself focus on climate justice, but for reasons that are more on the practical side of things than the philosophical side of things, exactly for the reasons you're bringing up, right? Because we can tell a very general story of how the world comes to be the way that it is, very broadly construed. The reasons why it has the institutions that it has, socially speaking, the reasons why cultures have evolved in the way that they have, and the reasons why rocks exist over here and rivers exist over here in the current state of pollution and erosion that they existed. Um, so the historian Eduardo Galeano in um, Open Veins talked about the environmental degradation that came from the particular kind of crop management that was part and parcel of colonization in Latin America. The sugar and other kind of monoculture type planting and agricultural management. Um, those things are quite general. And Kyle White, um, an indigenous philosopher, has been particularly good at making those very general connections to the state of the environment, particularly as it's experienced by indigenous peoples, to the history of colonialism um, in a way that's relevant to climate justice, obviously, but it's much broader. When you think about the arguments that are made about the way colonialism has shaped the world, like the physical world. It's really insane that it's only been in the past, what, 20 years that we've been, maybe 30, it's, it's now 2020, that like there's been this mainstream environmental discourse about like how we're living in a, in a man-made world or in a world that's made by humans. Like, oh, it, it took us, like, it only happened after the great acceleration or something. The reason that that, ha the reason that people are making that argument is because they're looking at sort of like the, the wilderness areas of the world and not the, yeah, like what we've been farming and where agriculture has happened and where we've been mining, et cetera. Those have not been the provinces of environmental concern for environmental philosophers. Part of it is also probably the way that we don't have lots of crossover with people who study colonialism, people who study political science even. That's just a, an observation more than a question, but it, it is pretty... Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so in your chapter, you talk about this idea of climate colonialism. Can you give us, like, what do you mean by this? Can you give us a just general definition of what you're talking about here? And yeah. maybe by point of comparison, how should we think about climate colonialism as being different from other kinds of forms of colonialism? Yeah, so the general way that I'm thinking about colonialism um, is the kind of way of thinking about colonialism that was, um, I think, popular amongst um, people who were very involved in the African anti-colonial struggles of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, so uh, the kind of definition that Emilcar Cabral would have had, where what makes a social structure colonial or what makes a group of people dominated by a colonial power is an issue of control and specifically control over the productive forces, control over how you live, work, shelter yourself, eat, you know, the basic things that are easy to take for granted in the global north, but are still the condition of politics in much of the world, right? If someone controls whether or not you literally survive, it's not difficult to 
understand how they're going to control other things about you, other choices that you make, and so on and so forth. So that's how I think about colonialism in general. And climate colonialism is basically just the observation that climate change itself as a set of ecological impacts and events combined with the likeliest responses of our social systems are going to increasingly dictate how people are able to meet those basic material needs, shelter, safety, food, water. And unfortunately, to put it a bit more dramatically, I think it's going to dictate the terms of who's able to meet those needs at all, right? I think the going predictions about the ecological and sociological responses that we can expect in the coming decades um, are very clearly genocidal. And that's not even yet to talk of the mass displacement of peoples, especially in the global south, that we can expect as the consequences of climate change accelerate in rate and severity. When you talk about that, I think about how little I see when I'm reading about analysis of responses to climate change and like, you know, and political responses to climate change and things, how little conversation there still is as well about what it actually means to like adjust our lifestyles enough to to make our response to climate change equitable as well. So um, so that we're taking care of of the global south as well as the global north. And I, I feel like, you know, we, I, this message has come through from the, the last IPCC report that we drastically need to change things. But like what that actually looks like still feels like it's missing quite a lot from the conversation. And I feel like that's that sort of fits with what you're saying as well as that we're we're just we're not recognizing that there's totally the possibility here that we're going to in the global north attempt to maintain certain lifestyles and living standards at the expense of people in the global south so we might be we might be addressing climate change if we all start driving electric vehicles by some people's idea of what it means to address climate change but like what does that come at the expense of which again like Andrea said before just more of an observation than a question but that's a real gap in the conversation it's a it's a real gap I definitely agree but the gap is being filled on the right with immigration policy whether or not people's anxieties are consciously about this I think there is a sense at some level of awareness um, and very consciously by particularly well-positioned elites that there may come some choices between maintaining particular aspects of living standards and particular aspects of the current state and composition of societies that we have and the ways that we're going to need to make changes to meet the demands of justice. And so there is, as you say, a gap of explicitly acknowledging the kind of political preparation that we need to do. Um, But on the right wing, there is a concerted political effort to get out in front of this issue. The problem is that way of getting out in front of the issue is border walls or increasingly draconian enforcement of borders and border patrolling and border security. The implication is that as climate change accelerates, we can expect that policing to accelerate. And so from a policy perspective, um, the right wing, or at least a section of the right wing, has found their answer. Those of us who don't want that answer have yet to respond to that set of policies as what it is, which is preparation for climate genocide. Yeah. To maybe add to it, I guess, that as you point out in the in the blogs that you write, even the sort of transition to a low carbon economy, um, which the people on the right don't even aren't even, you know, uh, entertaining this as a possibility. But even in even amongst people who are what ends up happening or what there's I mean, I think we already have evidence that it is happening and that it's probably only likely to increase are the kinds of things that you point out, like land grabs and exploitative mining. And I mean, these are going to be the kinds of, yeah, necessary conditions, I guess, in order for the people in, in, who are wealthy, like us in the global north and the west, to continue the kinds of lives that we expect to be able to have. 
it's not even like a failure to respond to to what's happening on the right and calling it what it is. It's it's also at best failure to be critical about on to to critically reflect on really the consequences of a low carbon transition. This worries me because it it doesn't even seem like there are strategies or like ways to think about how justice can be a consideration on either side. I completely agree, and I think it goes back to Claire's point a bit, and also to one of the points that I'm also centrally trying to make in the book and with the chapter Reconsidering World History. There's part of the reason that I'm giving it global story is because we live in a global world now. And what that means is whether we like it or not, and whether we understand it or not, the terrain on which we're struggling politically is global. It has global consequences. And we're talking about the way the world as a whole has to be arranged if any of us is going to maintain anything, whether we're talking about standards of living, whether we're talking about intergenerational expectations of what kinds of wealth, income, access to education we can pass on to our kids. These are global issues. What that means and why I was agreeing with your point so emphatically and enthusiastically is that I think, especially in the global north, especially in the United States, there's kind of been a retreat from international thinking. And we're just not thinking on a world level about what the world needs to be like for the particular things that we want in our circumstances to be available to us, right? For the particular political demands that we want to be available for us. And again, you know, I hate to keep using the right as a foil here, but many people on the right are thinking about the world. And this is why we end up in wars, because they understand what needs to happen all the way over on that continent in order for them to be able to maintain the kinds of advantages and privileges they want to be able to maintain. And I think if we want justice at that same scale, rather than injustice, um, as some people are pushing on the right, then we also need to think at that scale. Yeah. So there is this recognition, I mean, it, it just amongst most people, people in environmental philosophy, otherwise, that climate change is a, is a new kind of problem because it's an irreducibly global problem. There's no way that you can even think about this problem without understanding the earth as an entity and the atmosphere as a, something that's, that has no real borders in the way that our political boundaries exist. But then why, if there's this new recognition about global aspects of environmental impact and presumably, hopefully, also about justice and contributions and who should be, you know, reducing their impacts on the environment so that other people are not so unjustly harmed. Why is it with maybe this attention to this globalness of this problem that then at least what you're pointing to in these blogs and what I agree we're seeing and we need to worry more about are further and perhaps more severe instances of exploitative industry in the name of the low carbon economy. Why would that happen? It's a kind of naive question, but I imagine you have a well-considered answer to it. I hope. Uh, one of the asymmetries between um, the people who are doing politics on the side of industry or the military, as opposed to people who are entering politics in the spirit of solidarity with oppressed and marginalized people is that there's a lot more money and resources in the former than in the latter, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you combine that with just the, at least in the United States, there's different stories to tell in different areas of the world. But if you combine that with a kind of disinvestment and even government-led offensive against workers-based institutions, particularly unions, there's a real growing imbalance between the kinds of political connections that are going to make transnational organizing possible. And as transnational organizing becomes less possible, then transnational thinking becomes more difficult, right? Imagine these same conversations in a much different sort of institutional space. Um, people would be able to imagine something that they could do to help or influence politics in another part of the world other than going vegan or flying less, which are things we should do. They'd be able to Im imagine 
other ways of organizing yeah. if those other ways of organizing were actually practically available to people, mm -hmm. right? But there's a global trend away from the kinds of things that created the anti-apartheid movement or the kinds of things that bolstered transnational labor organizing. And in the absence of those institutions, you also get a corresponding absence in political imagination, I think. Yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah, so one thing that sticks out to me, which I think is sh showing how much we are at risk of going down the kind of road that you're talking about in your writing is governments are still looking to the same players that have got us into this mess to solve this mess. So Shell, BP, Exxon, all of those sorts of companies who are like, we, we're making renewable energy now and they've got it's like three percent of their business and even if they're doing that and even if they were doing that at scale there's no evidence that they would do it in a different way to how they did their oil and gas extraction and perpetuate the injustices that they've managed to do through their extractive business models and so i think that that seems like a, a big concern as well is that like it's obviously a lack of like this global thinking from some leaders and some governments but this idea that yeah we're going to be saved by corporations but I, I don't know if you if you have something particularly about like the corporate side of things in your thinking yeah i mean i'd say one of the things working against a different kind of political atmosphere is a sort of ideology about corporations and perhaps more broadly than corporations but just people in charge right there's people in charge of stuff and it's their responsibility to fix things, and we're going to leave it to them, maybe because we can trust them on one side of the political spectrum, or maybe just because we're not in a position to influence their behavior, as might fit a different kind of area of the political spectrum. So I think we have kind of an ideology about what corporations are about that we need to critically investigate. But also, more generally than that, we have a sort of theory of power that we also need to critically investigate. Um, and part of that means supporting unions and supporting other sorts of movement-type organizations that have power to call corporations and governments alike to account. And then part of that also means reconsidering our own commitments as to who we trust and what we trust. Yeah, okay. I'm trying to put together the sort of global climate context with the reparations paper and, or not just the reparations paper, but also the reconsidering world history paper, which is a very globally oriented paper. And reparations come up at the end of that as well, when you're talking about the way that power and wealth and social privilege and, well, all kinds of privilege have, have accrued to certain places and people over, over historical time and have importantly not accrued in other places. You write that reparation should be understood as, and this is quote, a quote, as a response to the history that produced this world order that you're describing. That's the end of the quote. And so you, des you defend a view that's a direct response to this world order. So should we think about reparations in a climate context, or are these two somewhat separate questions that need to be handled somewhat separately? I don't think they're separate questions at all. I think they are, in a practical sense, the same question. So my interpretation of world history is starting from a perspective that I think appreciates the newness of the world, right? So prior to the 15th century, you had people over there, people over there, and people over there. And something happened, and suddenly we have a world. Suddenly we have maps of this whole planet. Suddenly we have economic relationships where things produced on one continent travel over one ocean, maybe even two, to another continent. Suddenly we have political arrangements of power and social arrangements of power and production on islands in the Caribbean responding to political realities on the body of Eurasia. How does that happen? Well, the historical events that made that come into being just were the colonization of the world by a set of European powers 
um, boosted and catalyzed by the transatlantic slave trade. The story of how we got a world just is those stories, the stories of those moral crimes um, and those political developments. And since that story explains the Industrial Revolution, and that story explains the climate crisis, the climate story of how we got into climate crisis just is the numerically identical story that I've just told about how it is that we came to have a world and how it is that the world came to have this unjust structure. Um, so if we're thinking about responding to that world, responding to its set of processes of accumulation, where it sends advantages, where it sends disadvantages, how those are distributed, then the question is, how do we want to respond to that? What kind of response do we think is necessary? There are other theories of reparations. There are yeah. people who are thinking about reparations just as a response to moral crime, which is certainly involved, but is just part of things from my view. There are people who give reparations different assignments. There are people who think what reparations ought to do is symbolize our sincere regret of the past and communicate a different intention moving forward. There's people who believe what reparations should do is make a material difference in the lives of the descendants of the enslaved and or the colonized, especially in the case of indigenous peoples. Um, and all of these are things that reparations ought to do. But in my view, I think let's tell the full story of what it is that reparations needs to accomplish. And in my view, the full story of what reparations needs to accomplish is changing things for everybody. That's a forward-looking goal. That's a future-looking goal, right? It's not just responding to something that happened in the past and trying to make it right. But it's also trying to build a thing in the future. It's trying to make something happen looking forward. And when we're asking about constructive, forward-looking future goals of any kind, like any good construction project, you have to think about what the terrain that you're building on is going to be like. What's going to be the foundation for doing anything politically 20, 30, 40 years in the future? a generation into the future, two generations into the future. What all of us are going to have to contend with, any of us who have forward-looking aspirations of any kind, is the reality of climate crisis, which is going to increasingly define politics as we know it. We can ask for half measures if we'd like, right? We can ask for apologies and memorials. We can ask for checks even. All of these are good ideas. All of these deserve a place in part of the portfolio of action that we ask for. But if we just ask for those things, those things are going to end up underwater in 40 years. Wealth is not an irreversible transfer. Even if we somehow redistribute wealth, which I would note is a good deal more politically difficult than redistributing income. Even if we accomplish that, if we don't change the actual social, political, and material arrangements that, as a rule, as a set of processes, describe and decide where advantages in general get distributed and where disadvantages get distributed to, even if we intervene in today's snapshot of a distribution, if we don't change those processual realities that describe how our world works, we're not going to achieve justice, not in any lasting sense, not for our children, not for their children. And that's what I want to achieve. And I think we need a theory of reparations to match. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That's great. So I'm imagining that this theory of reparations wouldn't be a thing that you could just decide, okay, we're going to take the next five years and sort it out it would actually have to be something that would take a much longer time because if it's, it is responding to how climate change plays out in the next even 50, 100 years, it seems like, well, you can't make a decision in 2020 about reparations, how what they look like. In fact, you could maybe start doing that work, but you'd have to keep revising it. So how do you see that playing out over time? Is it just a, is it a process that is iterative forever? Or do you imagine it having a, a point where we can say, okay, we've, we've equalized so at some point, or do, is there ever? 
Yeah, yeah. You've you've asked you've asked the hard the hardest question of all. Um, but I I think that's exactly the question we have to stare in the face. Um, yeah, but I don't even think so. I've thought about that maybe not in terms of reparations, but just in terms of what we have to do if we want a just world in a climate changed world, right? That these questions, yeah. like if we yeah, if we want to think about wealth distrib redistribution and reparations. These aren't things you get to just do and have over, right? Like the, you'll need to, this will be a continuous process. Yeah, I think it's a hard question, but I don't by any means think it would be unique to reparations alone, but just, yeah, a commitment to justice, right? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, and something I should say about the view of reparations that I'm explaining and offering and defending, I suppose, is the role that I give reparations is the right distribution of costs in the transition to the just world. So it's a constructive project, which means we have to build something. We have to arrive somewhere, but it's not an event. Yeah. Right. Um, and even the world, as I describe it, is not an event. I describe the world as processes, right? They're things that unfold over time. So the thing that we're trying to achieve is not a particular day where everyone has what they should have, right? It's, it's not exactly even a the thing you're describing, right? It's it's not even like a state of affairs. It's yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, it's not a state of affairs um, on any given day or for any given era. It's a set of historical processes. It's a way that the world responds to developments over time. That's the only thing justice could be, on my view. You can see it play out in a concrete way if we're thinking about climate politics and climate justice as a sort of frame of reference for this kind of thought. How we should distribute the costs of responding to climate crisis problems as they come up depends on where they come up, right? Yeah. It's gonna depend on how much the sea level rises. It's gonna depend on where the hurricanes actually materialize. And it's gonna depend on all these sorts of contingencies that we can at best plan for in advance in a categorical sense. How are we gonna to respond to disasters in general? How are we going to respond to mass displacement in general? But when it actually happens specifically, um, then we need to have a sort of res specific response to those calamities, those events. Um, so I agree that thinking of climate justice as a destination and thinking of the target of reparations on the constructive view as a destination shouldn't make us think we're going to get to a specific distribution or a specific state of affairs 30 years from now and then we'll be done. What we should hope for is we're going to create a world that responds in a just way to new things that happen. Yeah. I keep thinking about all, all the things saying in the context of the stuff I already spend my time thinking about <laughs> um, these days. And one of the things that I guess like out, so not exactly outside of the like the political structures and processes and like social well it's it's totally embedded within it it's like the the media and like where the attention is spread on different things and I've been been watching this difference in reporting on on like the Australian bushfires versus the floods that have just been happening in Indonesia where many more people died and I think many more homes were destroyed and the global response to that has been like incomparable in terms of like the money pouring into Australia versus like going to Indonesia and I just think that's the kind of thing that needs to an, another level where this this kind of just response needs to become totally embedded in, in how society reacts not just how how we react politically but like a, a sort of a, in, a, in an emotional sense in a way to recognize that like everyone's in this thing and the impacts are happening everywhere Australia is not the one that's necessarily the worst hit at the moment because it's also got more resilience built into into it as a country compared to somewhere like Indonesia. And that's just something that occurred to me while you were talking about that. It's just that sort of emotive response we have to things in a way is so shaped 
by all of these unjust social structures and and political processes and things that you've been talking about that we don't even like as individuals necessarily respond in a way that's just and reflects how climate change is already impacting people in different places yeah i completely agree with that observation and there's a connection between that and political realities maybe in more material terms like who has infrastructure and who has wealth so our emotive responses our patterns of attention of care and concern these are also things that are distributed and in an unjust world they're distributed unjustly so we spend much more time thinking about caring for performing concern for places like Australia when they face climate related catastrophe than places like Indonesia when they face climate related catastrophe and that kind of difference in the in- informal aspects of social structure how care concern attention respect are distributed feeds back into material reality in the conclusion of the second world war when much of europe is lying in ruins it's understood to be an intolerable set of conditions and so there is a vast rebuilding effort there's one led by the insurgent soviet union there's one led by the united states marshall project and there is a concerted effort involving lots of finance involving lots of technocratic input to get them out of that situation the same is not true for much of the global south yesterday's care concern and attention materializes into today's physical infrastructure creditworthiness and institutional capacity so i think one of the things that this kind of difference between australia and indonesia shows is kind of the full breadth of what sorts of distributive processes we have to challenge if we're going to succeed in responding to environmental injustice and all the other sorts of political injustices that coalesce and congeal into negative outcomes into injustice for the people of the world you make the argument that the green new deal which is the ostensibly progressive climate and economic plan introduced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey that this might in fact contribute to a colonial legacy of of continuing to exploit the global south can you explain more about the risks you see here in the context of the green new deal or at least these kinds of hopeful i'd even say plans for policy in the coming decades so i want to make sure that i'm framing this set of dangers in the right sort of way i think the green new deal is exactly the sort of thing that needs to happen it's tackling policy at the right sort of breadth and depth to tackle the sort of challenge that the climate crisis is and so there needs to be something like the green new deal something that functions like the green new deal and the proposal for it is very early and it could go a lot of ways and many of the ways that it could go would improve justice from a climate colonialism perspective rather than pose a problem for it. Yeah. So I want to acknowledge that possibility before I discuss any dangers. Mm-hmm. Great. Um that said, um <laughs> <laughs> there are some conceivable ways that legislation like the Green New Deal could go awry. Um and I think the way I would organize thinking about them is to recall this idea of distribution that is central to how I think about most things in politics but certainly how I think about the climate crisis. Two aspects of distribution that get talked about in the media a lot, one of which um I think is popular and the second of which hasn't been spoken about quite as much. So the first is the carbon budget. Um the carbon budget refers to the idea that scientists tell us there's a certain amount of carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent that the earth can afford to emit in a given year. And part of the claims that people are making part of the targets that they're setting for green new deal legislation 
and legislation like it at the state and local levels are responding, whether consciously or unconsciously, to this carbon budget. They're saying, let's lower our emissions, and let's lower our emissions, let's functionally means let's use up less of the carbon budget. So I think from a global perspective, from a transnational perspective, there's an issue of justice just with that, because the more large countries like the United States are able to curtail their emissions, the more space developing economies have to use technologies that might emit some carbon, but that are necessary from a holistic justice perspective to be able to support populations that don't have access to energy or healthcare or income to get access to those things. So I think there's an important distributive justice question about how much emissions the United States is going to be responsible for. And so ambitious targets like net zero are good from that perspective. But the devil is in the details. How do you get to net zero? Do you get to net zero by using, say, carbon offsets? Do you get to net zero by saying we're going to plant such and such many trees for every airplane flight that we take and help offset the carbon we emit from the airplane by sequestering, by sucking up some of that carbon with the trees that we plant. This isn't a necessary feature of carbon offsets, but some carbon offset programs operate in ways that can be predatory by taking up land in the global south and by making specifications for its use that conflict with what indigenous communities would otherwise want to do with that land and space. So I think there are important questions from a justice perspective of how we meet those targets. Another way that we might meet lower emissions targets is, of course, by switching to higher levels of renewable energy, for example, wind and solar. But there are important transnational global questions of justice here as well. Solar panels require minerals that have to be extracted from the earth. Where are those minerals? Um, what are the relationships of the companies that are extracting those minerals with the people who live in the area where the minerals are being extracted, whether they're indigenous peoples, whether they're um, working class peoples, there are questions of justice that are important from that perspective. But even pivoting away from the carbon budget, there's a second sort of analogous aspect of what we would need to do in a Green New Deal to be effective in mitigating the climate crisis, which is um, the sort of negative aspect of the carbon budget. Scientists in the IPCC have said that we're going to need to remove carbon at the scale of gigatons of CO2 or CO2 equivalent by the mid-century. And right now, global North economies, the EU, the United States, they're systematically underinvesting in this technology, um, especially at the government level, which increases the chances that this technology itself, research into it and eventual rollout of that technology will be monopolized and politically controlled by fossil fuel corporations, the exact sort of people who would limit the use of those technologies to just what protects their bottom line rather than what protects the planet. A Green New Deal that is going to be just from an international perspective would have to play its part, not just in making sure there's enough carbon budget on the positive side for the developing world, but it would have to play its fair role in the sort of negative carbon budget in carbon removal, technology, research and development in order to ensure global justice. I've read some, some people say like, oh, we need a global Green New Deal. Um, do you think something like a global Green New Deal would be a way to address that? Yeah, I'm not in principle against that sort of idea. Um, there are certainly aspects of global coordination that we would need to figure out some way of accomplishing if we're going to be able to get climate crisis mitigated. If we were to say tax carbon globally, that would require a great deal of coordination with different trading blocks, with different national governments, multinational corporations, all those sorts of things would be involved. 
it's not clear to me that a global Green New Deal in a sort of procedural or legislative sense is necessarily the way that that would have to happen. In fact, to be a little bit uncharitable for the sake of making the point, why isn't the Paris Agreement the sort of thing that militates against thinking that a global Green New Deal is necessarily the way to go? Um, I don't think that's, as I said, necessarily a fair way to deal with the idea, but it does at least bring up the sorts of complications that should give us pause about going all in on that route of response. You know, if someone's out there and they think they can orchestrate a global Green New Deal through a relevant international or transnational body or through um, some kind of summit that would be effective, that would set reasonable targets and that would distribute distribute benefits and burdens in a fair way, um, I'm all for it. But I have yet to see the kind of proposal that would make me think we should only try that strategy. We should try that strategy, throw other things at the wall, see what sticks. The Green Climate Fund is the closest thing to reparations of the kind that I'm arguing in the book that currently exists. The practical upshot of my view of reparations in the short to medium term would basically just be fully fund the Green Climate Fund, plus plus have an equivalent version of disaster financing for developed countries, but or for developing countries. But you know, I could basically, you know, if if somebody wanted a real concrete version of what I would say, it would be basically that. I'm concerned about where it is in the American political landscape. And I would hope that any Democratic candidate for president would endorse some version of funding it and not just returning to the Paris Agreement, you know, as though it were a clubhouse, as opposed to a set of commitments to work hand in hand with the rest of the world about this climate crisis. Oh, that's nicely put. I think I ask this question almost every interview we have. What do you think philosophers should be doing? Are we doing enough when we're writing and talking to each other and, you know, you more than other people are writing for the public, right? I mean, most philosophers don't write blogs and op-eds and, yeah, you can talk about things that you do or you can talk about just in a more generic way. Like, what what should be the task of philosophy here? Um, with these kinds of problems, is it enough that we're academics or is there something else we should be doing? I'm especially interested because you're not, you don't identify as an environmental philosopher, but your work certainly intersects. And I'm curious, like as a political philosopher who is also working in the, on these environmental topics, where you see maybe both of these disciplines or what their tasks you think what they should be. Maybe they're the same or maybe they're not. Yeah, I think the first thing that I should say is that um, there's an organization of philosophers that has gotten together to organize as philosophers, to think as philosophers through exactly these sorts of questions. It's called Philosophers for Sustainability, um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to join this group thanks to the efforts of Rebecca Millsop and Eugene Chislenko. Um, there's now a global group of philosophers thinking through and acting on this question. And I think that in and of itself is an example of the sort of thing philosophers should be doing. As you pointed out towards the end, I'm not an environmental philosopher. I'm a philosopher who understands that I don't have to be to see what this has to do with me and what I'm already thinking about and what I'm already working on and what I'm already talking about with my students. And so I think coming together to help each other figure out what that means in our different spaces and our different specialties is definitely a sort of step one for figuring out an organized response. But I want to stress the organized in the phrase organized response. I think if those of us who don't run militaries or governments or corporations are going to effectively exercise power, we're going to need to get organized. And this is 
something that is in my wheelhouse as a political philosopher and, and something that I've given some thought about both before and after starting to think about climate justice. So I think whether it's philosophers for sustainability or whether it's your local climate activism group or whether it's even your local nonprofit organization that's working on issues of sustainability, environmental justice or climate justice, um, I think getting involved with a group of people and making collective efforts towards a set of goals is going to be the basic precondition for political relevance, for atmospheric relevance, for climate relevance, for any kind of relevance. We have to do it together. I think what's left to say after pointing out organization is that one of the most important roles that we philosophers have, at least those of us who are in departments like mine, are as teachers, right? So we can make it clear to our students in ways that are just now becoming clear to us what the different things that we already think about have to do with climate crisis and climate justice. And so I'm enlisting the help of very many people to teach a course this semester on global justice and the environment. I'm learning a ton along with my students. I don't pretend to have the answers in front of them. Um, the only thing I pretend is to have maybe a different set of questions than they might have started out with. Um, but sometimes in philosophy, that's enough. In fact, we often hope in philosophy that's enough because we've been thinking about the same questions for thousands of years, right? <laughs> So yeah, I think those are the things I would say as teachers and as people who can be part of organized efforts, those are the ways philosophers should get involved. Absolutely, like a really good note to wrap up on actually. Well, thanks so much and this was really great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Earth to Philosophy. Feel free to send us an email with thoughts or questions or topics or people you'd like us to cover. You can email us at earth2philosophy at gmail.com. And Claire, why don't you let people know how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Hamlet Claire. Um, so I'll be, I'll be tweeting about the episodes on there as well.